Welcome to the Leadership for Broadening Participation podcast. This podcast is part of the NSF-funded Golden Project, Geosciences Opportunities for Leadership in Diversity and Equity Network, supporting the post-award training and development for gold PIs. We call this episode Zero, Origin Stories. Our interview methodology was to repeatedly ask, where did this come from? Why do you do the work you do related to broadening participation? And what is it about your experience and life that helps you do it well? This reflective process is a fundamental skill of leadership. Knowing our own origin stories helps us understand who we are and what we have to offer, and informs our capacity to listen to the stories and experiences of others. Leadership is born here, in the ability to draw on instinctive, implicit, and unnamed aspects of our experience, to articulate a vision, identify right action, and find the capacity to carry on despite the challenges. This episode focuses on origin stories from six of our leaders, Corey, Darren, Wendy, Carolyn, Mary, and Jason. While these are individual stories, together they represent the source waters from which leadership for broadening participation emerges. We invite you to get to know our leaders through these stories, and perhaps in hearing their stories, you will also get to know a little bit more about yourself. Here is Corey's origin story. So Corey, one of the things we've been talking about are the unique credentials that we have that make us poised or uniquely qualified to do the work of broadening participation. So when you think about what brought you to this work, what motivates you to keep going, can you think about some credentials that make you perfect? I'm thinking about the commercial that, you know, where the people say, I'm I'm perfect for the job. What I usually open up with is one of the reasons I'm drawn to this is I'm one of those people who's underrepresented in the sciences. You know, my background, I'm I'm Mexican-American. I grew up in East L.A., a part of East L.A. called Boyle Heights. You know, my mom's side of the family was from San Antonio, Texas, and they worked in the garment industry. And my dad's side, they were uh, farm workers who went from farm to farm during the season. And then they eventually all moved, you know, out to California. And that's where the two sides met. And I, that's where I came from. Going through high school, it's, uh, you know, I never really saw myself as a scientist. You know, just growing up, there weren't a lot of role models uh, for me. You know, growing up, and I grew up with it, just my mom and I, we lived with my grandmother and my aunt. And you know, it was really hard for me to see myself as a scientist. And so I was kind of resigned to, I was going to have the, you know, the jobs that everyone else in my neighborhood did. And it wasn't until I had a high school biology teacher say, hey, you know, you're pretty smart. You should try doing something different with your life. And I got into a high school internship program. And that's what really sparked my interest in the science program. And so that would propel me to go to college. I think I was the only minority in a graduate program of 120 students. You know, it wasn't until like a friend of mine pointed that out to me. He was kind of jokingly, he jokingly told me one day, you realize you're the diversity for the program. And I kind of looked like, oh, I never really thought about it that way. Growing up in LA prepared me really well for going out into the world. You know, when I talk to people, they assume my only friends, you know, growing up were Hispanic kids in East LA. And that was actually as far from the truth as possible. You know, uh, my best friend was a kid who's from Thailand. So, you know, my mom, one of her best friends, her husband, is he's actually Chinese. And so their kids are Chinese American. It was really funny. He was uh, this guy who's Chinese American selling churros, like in the middle of East LA, a really successful churro cart that he put his kids to college with, you know, and so you grow with people and, you know, where they're coming from, you know, they're coming from different walks of life. You know, you find you have some similarities, you know, we all have issues with our own family. There's like family rules, you know, and hierarchies that are there. You know, we all went to college 
And so we have a lot of shared experiences. You know, I went to Cal State LA, and it was a pretty diverse campus. You know, people who are Hispanic, Japanese American, Chinese American, Korean American, African American. We go out at night, and it was just like, oh, you know, everyone from the city was going out with us. It seemed like you learn to sort of really listen to what people are going through and understand your kind of shared experience. My postdoc was actually in the Deep South, and I remember my family was like, "Oh my God!" I remember really well because you know, once we got down to it, culturally we're different, but when we, I really sat down and talked to people. Socially, we're pretty much the same. You know, we all grew up in you know, low-income neighborhoods. We all had issues with dad or mom at some point in our life. You know, we all ate a lot of food that wasn't really good for us. You know, so there were a lot of these things, you know, that popped up. And so when I go down there, I'm actually able to interact with people pretty well. I think, in fact, you know, that lets me do, when I do my own work, you know, go work with, you know, people who work in the fishing industry, the local fishermen. You know, I can just sit down and have a conversation because it's no different than, you know, talking to like my uncles who worked at the auto plants in LA. It's like they're pretty much all blue collar folks if this way you want to talk about it that way. And so it's really easy for me to chat with them. And I, you know, we get along, you know, they always tell me I'm good people. It's kind of funny, like they're surprised I'm a professor because they say I don't act like one. I'm like, well, I don't know how professors are supposed to act. Darren's origin story. I'm kind of an interesting case. Um, I uh, am disabled. So I have oculocutaneous albinism, which means I have no pigment in my hair, skin, or eyes. I would like anyone to explain to me how someone with no pigment in their skin became a field geologist, but that's where life took me. So I come at this from a very, very sort of unique perspective. I've really come to realize that there's no easy answers. There's no easy, straightforward answers to any of this. My experience as someone with a disability is nowhere near the same as that of an African-American woman. And unfortunately, the solutions are probably not the same either at all. And so this is complicated. This is very, very complicated. And there are not straightforward answers. Heck, my experience as a person with a visual disability is not the same as someone with a mobility disability. When there's no simple answers, what it becomes is a war of attrition. You've just got to keep at it. You've got to keep at it. I haven't really excelled at anything that I've done. You know, I mean, I've gone to grad school. I've gotten a PhD. I've certainly been competent, even talented in what I've done. But I can tell you that there's one thing I know that I do better than just about everyone else I've met in life. And that's, I put one foot in front of the other. I just put one foot in front of the other. And where does this come from? Well, my parents would tell you that this came from the small, skinny, blind, severely asthmatic little boy they had on the farm growing up in Northwest Minnesota, who several times a year when the pollen would get too bad or when the, the wheat chaff would get too bad during the, the wheat harvest, my nights would be spent actively forcing myself to take another breath because my asthma was, was so bad. It was either that or quite literally die. And so I guess that's probably the type of place where that tenacity came from or the little kid who could not see the board but wanted to learn about science, wanted to learn about reading, you know, but couldn't see the board. So even in first grade, had to start thinking of alternative mechanisms to, to get things done. And that's, I suppose, what drove me forward. And I guess why I may be a, a good fit, a good choice for this. 
part of being who I am as a disabled individual and, and having had the life experiences that I've had means that I've always been kind of an outsider. You know, I've, I've never really been part of uh, an accepted group. One of the questions you're always asked on those uh, diversity inventory tests is, have you ever been in a situation where you have been the minority? You know, you've been the only white person in a room full of African-American. And I always answer that question with, I've never been in a situation where I haven't been the minority. I've never been in a room full of people with albinism. So I, I don't know what the converse is like. But having that sort of outsider viewpoint means that I can engage in a leadership style that people may criticize, but I kind of don't care because what does it matter? <laughs> I'm outside the box anyway, so okay. And so you can kind of engage in these things and, and just show that there is an alternate leadership style that works that isn't necessarily blatant alpha. You can make it work. Wendy's origin story. Um, I always say I found science in the village. I was always that weird kid <laughs> that was jumping off the dock, chasing fish and getting uh, starfish. And, and I remember my, um, my elders, my grandpa would come down there and I'd come up off the side of the dock. I'd be swimming and he'd put his boat in and I'd come up and go, look at this fish I caught. And he'd just be like, oh my God, you're crazy. And having that traditional lifestyle, we would go pick berries and mushrooms and pull cedar. And I'm out there crawling through logs, chasing bugs. And so I found it at home. I just didn't know I had found it until my chana, my grandfather died. He paid for me to go to school one quarter. And I, I did really well. It surprised me. And uh, I found microbiology at that point, And I just continued on from there. I didn't go home for 18 years because I could not imagine, I'm going to cry, <laughs> I couldn't imagine being there without him. So I waited. And then um, right before I went into graduate school, I decided I needed to go home. And so I took what I did at the geoscience and oceanography, and I brought that home. I worked with my own community, my tribal elders for a year to say, you know, what do you need? What do we need to do? What do these students need? What do you want me to teach? It was geared around the needs of the community, not the needs of what I wanted to do. And that was the difference. I worked with them and not on them. And that's a huge difference. I think there's a line that people don't typically see. They think if they're working on somebody, it's working with them and it's not the same. And so at that point, it was very interesting because these elders that I grew up with, I was a kid, they don't tell their life story. And the next thing you know, we had a house full of elders telling us all their experiences. So this was in 2008. At that time, leaving to go to school for college was considered bad because of their experiences in boarding schools. Our elders are our leaders, but they were leading by fear and manipulation because they felt like it was the safest thing for our people. If I scare you into not leaving, at least I know you're safe. That was a year of working with our community, with our elders, and listening to their stories and promising them that if these kids chose to go to school, I would be there to um, advocate for them. And I would help them find resources. I would help them get into college. I would be a mentor to them and also protect our knowledge. Not all knowledge can be shared. Not all knowledge can be written. And so we ask, can this be shared outside the community? And if it can't, we don't share it. But respecting those. And in indigenous country, it's, it's a known thing. And that's one of the things we forget. 
non-natives are working in our communities, they're given some information and they think that that can be shared. And so we forget to tell them we can't share it and they forget to ask. But to make those promises made a huge difference. Because I'm telling you, the first six months of the project, the elders would say, oh, tell me what you want to do while they watch TV and click through channels. And I had to just sit there and talk. And they were listening. They just weren't going to give me their attention until they realized I was sincere about what I was doing. And now we're 10 years down the road and we were at 5% going to college. We're 60% going to college now. We have written curriculum that are going to, is going to be given to the school next year with our traditional knowledge for K through 12. The community owns this project now and the tribe supports it. And I, t- I tell them that my job is to put myself out of a job. One of these kids is going to go to school and come back and take it over. Carolyn's origin story. I mean, my introduction to social justice was very much around the LGBT community. You know, that was the identity that spoke, spoke very, I mean, because it's my identity. It's the identity that spoke, you know, obviously most closely to me. And, and that's the, you know, that was where my heart broke first, you know. Um, it, was, it was watching gay kids. I, I, it was after the Prop 8 decision, and we saw an uptick in suicides uh, when Prop 8 passed in California to um, make gay marriage or same-sex marriage, you know, illegal again. And there's an uptick in suicides of LGBT youth after that. And that's the point at which, I mean, my heart was a little broken anyway over the Prop 8 decision, even though I had enough context to know that things would probably move on and we would probably see, see you know, a victory in that eventually. But seeing how, how much those kids were affected was just devastating to me personally. And so that's why I started working with the Trevor Project. And I was in schools doing workshops for um, middle schoolers and high schoolers on suicide prevention and, and talking to them about LGBT. And I never had a really bad time of it. My family were always incredibly supportive and, you know, that they, they did a really good job when I came out, you know. But I think that my teenagehood was hard because I didn't really know what was wrong with me. I knew that I didn't feel the way, the same way as other people felt. And I just thought that I was broken. I didn't realize I was gay. I just thought I was broken. And so, um, you know, the, the, the thought that maybe I would never be able to love somebody or people wouldn't love me in that way, the way that other people had, that, that was a little heartbreaking to me. Well, that was very heartbreaking to me. And that was, you know, that was a, a big thing. And so I think that my heartbreak over gay kids was really not wanting any of them to feel that way so that they knew that they were whole and normal and okay and it was all going to be all right. And I remember that I, for the longest time, well, for maybe, I don't know, three or four years, I was very much stuck in my own oppression. You know, I went through all those stages of coming out that are kind of standard stages of coming out. And I was very much in that pride phase, you know, woe betide anybody who thought I was straight. You know, I was like kind of dripping in rainbows, you know, very, very proud of my identity. And that part of my identity became like the most salient part of my identity for, for quite a long time. And I think that it was hard for me to then look at other people's oppression because, you know, whenever we kind of talked about their oppression, I was, yeah, yes, and, and, but, 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 but me, 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 you know? And that was very much a, a thing for a while. And I have to say, I didn't realize how privileged I was until I started to interrogate my own privilege, um, you know, and, and the realization that I, you know, other people haven't had a fair, the same fair shot that I had. I think was a real big wake up call for me. It was a lot of people being very patient with me and a lot of people pointing out that these other oppressions exist and definitely 
the amazing education I got, not only from Claremont Graduate University, who really put these, I mean, it was, it was, I think it was a course called Urban Schooling, I think it was. So we were very much looking at um, schooling in uh, inner city environments. And that brought home to me the racism that existed in the school system. And that really started me on that path of, okay, maybe my oppression sucks and it's not the only thing here. And, 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 you know, it became an and rather than a but. And I think the other piece I had as well was some amazing people within the physics and astronomy community. So there were some folks who started the equity and inclusion in physics and astronomy Facebook page where I got an unbelievable amount of education in social justice there. So Chanda Prescott-Weinstein was one of the women who, she's a, she's a black queer woman who is a physicist, but she does an amazing amount of social justice work within the community. Jodida Reisler is a black woman in, in, in the community who is doing amazing social justice work. And so there were these folks who were on that page who gave me an incredible education in social justice and in other oppressions and the ways I was getting it really, really wrong as a white person. You know, I mean, I got called out hard multiple times. Um, and that's why I don't necessarily, I mean, I, I believe very much that we should always come and meet people where they're at and come at the ideas of teaching about social justice with compassion. And some of my biggest learning moments were when I got called out hard in public and I had to go away, lick my wounds and think seriously about what it was I had just said and then think about how I was going to make that right. So I think there's, there's roles for each of those ways of calling out and calling in. Both of those are valuable. Mary's origin story. As I said, my undergrad experience was positive. My graduate school experience was very positive. Uh, we were in graduate school half female students and half male students in the, in the uh, tectonics group. But I realized when I got to graduate school that I had never in my life taken a class from a female professor. And so at, at MIT in, in graduate school, I did. I did uh, but it, it hadn't even dawned on me that I hadn't, which I guess, I don't know what I was thinking and how I ended up going to graduate school, even when there weren't those kinds of role models. But anyway, kind of in a, you know, happy-go-lucky sort of way, I, I cruised through graduate school and had a positive experience. And then in my first teaching job, the department had never hired a woman before. And there was a new female dean, and she was putting pressure on them to hire somebody female. But they thought, okay, fine, if the dean wants us to hire a woman, she's going to she needs to put her money where her mouth is and get us a big startup package for this person and all this sort of thing. But they weren't sure how to bring this up to me. So they called my PhD advisor and said, hey, we want to use Mary. We want to use this situation to the department's benefit, but we don't know how to you know, say it to Mary and just, you know, how would she react? And he just laughed and said, oh, you know, Mary doesn't care. Be honest with her. Tell her, tell her the situation. I knew that a few of my classmates in graduate school were more uh, strident feminists than I was, and they probably would have taken offense. And I feel like, in a way, I was just too naive, or I don't know. I don't know, you know, where my mind was. But I stepped into an absolutely miserable situation of a department that had never, never hired a female and were actually quite resentful that the dean was putting pressure on them to hire a female. So I think going back to your question, where did where did my you know motivation came from? I think that my 
my sensitivity to difference and differing treatment of different individuals came out of that just gender-based experience. When I got to Kansas State University, over my, the course of my time there, I became quite close with a woman who was hired as the vice provost for diversity. I kind of got to know her, I guess, well, because I was working in Senegal, and she had worked in Senegal a fair bit. And so then I just I tuned into what she was doing on that campus. And she was clearly a leader of leaders, or, you know, she did a, an amazing job opening people's eyes on that campus. So that just opened my mind again to the inclusion piece. And I'll just throw one other bit into this um, story, I guess. My PhD work was in Nepal. And when I worked over there, I worked closely with local people. And these people were wonderful. And we ended up going to their remote villages, a a village where they'd never seen white people before. And um, just having that experience of that human social dimension to our planet that is just so amazing. And people would ask me afterwards, oh, Mary, how did you like doing your geology work in Nepal? And I'd say, well, don't tell my advisor, but the best part were the people. And, and it's true. And I get on a plane tomorrow for Nepal again, but I had a 30-year gap where I didn't go there. And in that 30-year gap, I did discover the African continent, another just absolutely amazing continent with the most amazing people. And I learned in India, so I used to travel a little bit through India, that you know, you can't say people in India are a certain way. It's very diverse, whether you're North, South, East, West, Hindu, Muslim, Jain, whatever. Well, Africa, even more so. But I, I feel like our students have no clue about that continent. And so it's been a bit of a passion of mine to get our students over there. I have an NSF proposal pending uh, to, to work in Namibia and part of that project would be to get some of our students there and their students here. So, so I think it's that other sort of cultural passion. I don't know what you say, but that you put some of these different things together and, and I ended up at a gold, gold workshop. And finally, Jason's origin story. First things first, I'm a Chinese American man. I'm married. I have two daughters, six and nine years old. So when people ask me things like, how did you ever get to start doing research on diversity and inclusion and equity? Because if you had known me as a doctoral student, that wouldn't have come up. You know, you wouldn't have been like, oh, yeah, you're definitely doing diversity, equity, inclusion work. The way it happened for me is that I had some damn good teachers. (laughs) I went to school at Emory University, which is in Atlanta, and as an undergraduate, started taking courses in education. I was a biology major, and I decided to take some courses in education. The education department at Emory University at that time was majority minority. Most of the faculty were faculty of color, especially African-American women. And, you know naive Asian-American me, I understand race because I've experienced racism and discrimination and all that, but like, I don't really understand it. And 
I had some wonderful African-American professors who really helped me understand and invited me to be vulnerable, invited me to think in a way that was totally different from how I had always been thinking and pointed out phenomenon, just social phenomenon that made me go, hmm, okay. And so I, I, I point to the beginning of my sort of like transformation and my, my interest in going to, to investigate DEI issues as that point uh, when, I, when I met these particular professors. Then I started teaching. I, you know, I, I was a physics and chemistry teacher in high school. I was a high school a physics and chemistry teacher. And, you know, when you're hanging out with kids for five years, you see lots of things happening. <laughs> you see all the makings of racism and sexism happening throughout. And, you know, they're not, inten- they're not intentionally being racist or sexist, but it's happening. And I didn't quite have the words yet or the skills yet as a teacher to really do anything with that. I did my doctorate at, at Emory. And again, was exposed to a lot of these same professors who really helped me not only understand it at an intellectual level, but write about it. Then, you know, I started getting my my momentum going with research, and it was in educational psychology. I think educational psychologists have, on average, sort of a impoverished view of race. I think psychologists think of race as 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 a moderator variable in a structural equation model. It's just a categorical variable you plug into your statistics models. And because that's how I was trained, that's how I did my research. But on reflection, I started thinking to myself, I'm frustrated. You know, I'm frustrated with my research. I'm frustrated with educational psychology in general because I don't feel like they're doing justice to issues of race. For me, that it was about race. And, you know, meanwhile, all in my personal life, I took it upon myself to really educate a lot of my my white friends, you know, about, you know, issues of race. Um, And so I was personally invested, but I was professionally, it wasn't an outlet for me. A year and a half ago from today, I I was like, okay, my third year review for tenure was really, it was really positive. It was really speaking favorably about what my trajectory was. And I I thought at the moment, maybe I, I can start taking some risks. You know, maybe I can start doing some things with my scholarship that go outside of what I'm used to. And so I started exploring things. And again, I, I, I leaned on my colleagues who are not in psychology to really help me understand things. My colleagues, one door down and two doors down, really have expanded my ability to ask interesting research questions and answer them. As luck would have it, the gold proposal went out or, you know, RFP went out and I just happened to be there at the right time and and I was ready for that to happen. I just jumped at the opportunity. I jumped at the opportunity to think to myself, this is going to be difficult. This is not like a perfect 100% good fit for me, but I'm going to take this opportunity because I'm frustrated with where I am right now and I I want to do really good research that has to do with issues of exclusion, of prejudice, um, particularly with racism and sexism. That's how I tell the story of how I got to where I am right now.
Frustration and inspiration from the village and from the city. Through heartbreak and humility, because of our tenacity and our teachers. These are the origins of leadership for broadening participation. In our next episode, episode one, we begin to examine the specific skills that our nine leaders named as we ask them what leadership for broadening participation requires of us. Episode one focuses on listening to difference. Leadership for broadening participation is not about the status quo or leading what is familiar or known. It requires a complex skill set that extends across and is guided by differences in identity, experience, opinion, analysis, and more. Kelly and I share some of our strategies and experiences related to listening to difference, and Darren, Corey, and Carolyn speak to how this process defines the work that they do. We hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leadership for Broadening Participation, copyright 2018, Cardia Group, LLC. We would like to thank the Gold Project leaders for the insight from their interviews and the Golden Community for their support and inspiration. Special thanks to Diana Cardia and Kelly Mack for leading the professional development aspect of Golden and for producing these podcasts. Thanks to Karen Williams for graphic design and Cindy Glover for editing and technical support. Music is by Kit Kat Club under a Creative Commons license. This material is based upon work supported by the National Science Foundation under grant number 1748340. Any opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this material are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Science Foundation. Thank you.